All right. Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12? If you're new with us, we have been working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary, and uh, we have been in chapter 12 for a few weeks. In fact, uh, verses 38 to 45, a section which we're currently in, as we come to this section, in fact, we're only going to get uh, verses 35 to 42 in today and then finish with 43 to 45 next week, but verses 38 to 45, we come to the conclusion of a confrontation that Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees. The confrontation really began around verse 22, when Jesus cast a demon out of a mutant blind man, restoring his sight and speech. Well, this caused the crowd to begin to wonder, hey, is this guy really the Messiah? Because they knew that in the Old Testament, God had prophesied through various prophets that when Messiah came, he would do these kinds of miracles. Now, the Pharisees, who obviously were not in Jesus' corner on this issue, were furious that the crowd was maybe turning toward Christ, acknowledging him to be the Messiah. So their anger got the best of them. It was simmering for a while. It kind of boils over in this chapter. And they just shot back, look, this guy doesn't work miracles by the power of God. He casts out demons by the power of Satan. Now, Jesus just calmly responded to that, really rebuking the logic that Satan would do things that would undermine and ultimately destroy his own kingdom. And then, in verses 31 and 2, Jesus warned these men that they were, getting, uh, they were in danger of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is the only unforgivable sin. What is it? Get the CD from a couple weeks ago. We went into that in detail. And then last week we saw that from there he went on to teach that a good tree is known by the good fruit it produces and also a bad tree is known by the bad fruit it produces. He said the same was true with the human heart. And since the scribes and Pharisees only spoke lies and untruths, it proved their hearts were bad, in other words, unredeemed. They thought they were children of God. Jesus says, no, you're really children of the devil. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. What comes out of your mouth is lies and untruths, and you're attacking me, the one the Father has sent. Therefore, you're proving that you are of your father, the devil. Now, that's where we kind of picked up this morning. And our first main point, which is the request of the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 38, then, some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want a sign, which means a miracle. The Greek word means miracle. We want a sign from you. Now, you have to wonder just what they wanted Jesus to do in the way of a miracle. I mean, up until this point, he has healed the sick and the physically handicapped. He has cast out demons and even raised the dead. So what in the world were they looking for? Many commentators can't figure out that they would want another sign. But here's the thing. Luke tells us what they asked was, give us a sign from heaven. You see, it seems that up to this point they had rejected all the miracles Jesus had done prior to this. Why? Because other prophets, like Elijah, Elisha, they did similar miracles. Look, if you're really the Messiah, like you say you are, we want you to do something really spectacular. Something that's never been done before. What? I don't know. I get the impression they were looking for something on a worldwide scale. Maybe like Jesus commanding the sun to shoot across the sky at midday. Or saying the word and the heavens would be ripped in two and the throne of God would be made visible from the earth. I don't know what they were looking for, but they were looking for something 
pretty spectacular. Well, Jesus said he wasn't going to appease their hunger for sensationalism, but he said that God would give to them one more sign, something that had never been done before or since in the history of the world. And that would be the sign of his resurrection. Now, we know that others had been raised from the dead before Jesus in the Old Testament, and others have been raised by God since. But listen, no one has ever been resurrected Never to die again is Jesus' resurrection. And so after we see the request of the scribes and Pharisees, we move then to the response of Jesus. In verse 39, he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Jesus denounced that generation of Jews as being evil and adulterous. Now, We know that in the first century Jewish culture, there were flat-out people living in open rebellion against God. There were flat-out evil folks, as there always are. I mean, you know, whether you talk about the first century Jewish culture, the 21st century American culture, there are always people who seem to revel in being rebels against what God has said, right? They're just flat-out evil. They make no bones about it. In fact, they kind of wear it as a badge of honor that they are living in open, defiant rebellion against God. But then you always have your religious folks, don't you? These would be the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. Those who went to temple. Those who kept the law of Moses meticulously and so on. These were the guys who thought that because of all their religious deeds and good works, they were earning themselves a place in God's kingdom. We see it today in our culture. Many are like the scribes and Pharisees. They've embraced and gotten deeply enmeshed in religious rules, rituals, ceremonies, and various duties that they believe are making them righteous in God's eyes and thereby earning them, listen, earning them a place in his kingdom. In that sense, they are involved in a false system. They think they're embracing the truth. Now, folks, I was one of those at one time. Most of you know I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, as a Roman Catholic, I loved the church. I loved uh, you know, going to church, I, I mean, lighting the candles and praying the rosary and doing the stations of the cross with my buddy. I mean, we, we did all this stuff because in our minds, that's what you do to, to get righteous with God, right? That's what you do if you want to earn God's favor and eventually uh, earn a place in heaven. As I began to read the New Testament, though, I began to see that God doesn't tell us that we have to do religious duties to get into heaven. In fact, he said, if you try to earn heaven through your religious works, you won't get heaven because heaven is a gift of God's grace. For anybody who tries to be righteous in God's eyes by keeping these religious rules and ceremonies and rituals, etc., they're involved in a false religious system, not in the system God has ordained in his word. Now, they don't realize that. Their church has taught them that, you know what, this is what you do to earn God's favor and get to heaven. You light the candles, you pray the rosary, you go to mass. If you're this or other faith, you do other things that you think will earn you a place in heaven. But that is a false religious system. It is not faithful to God and to his word. That's why it's adulterous. See, when Jesus said that this is an evil and an adulterous generation, The adultery he was referring to primarily was not physical adultery. It was spiritual adultery. It was unfaithfulness to God, especially the Jewish people who had been wed to God. 
They were the wife of Jehovah, the Old Testament says. But they were a rebellious and an adulterous wife. The whole book of Hosea uh, is, is given to us to illustrate this point. And you can read it on your own this week. But the idea is that they were adulterous in the sense they were not being faithful to God. They were his chosen people. But now that God has sent them the Messiah to give them the full disclosure of his revelation, to tell them what they needed to do, the law was given, Paul says, to bring us to Christ. Christ has come, and he has come to bring the new covenant. The law was never given to make people righteous. It was only given to show us how unrighteous we really are, because we keep breaking all those laws that God gave. This was designed by God to bring us to Christ and a new way, which is the only way, really, to get to God. Through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, right? That's what Jesus came to give. He came to to say, look, if you want to get to heaven, I'm the only way to get there. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. But here's how it works. You don't get there by your good works, your religious rituals, etc. You have to come by faith. So, you know, they're looking for a sign, something really spectacular. Jesus says, you know, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Verse 39, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, the miracles that Jesus did were all designed to be a sign. In other words, a revelation from God to point people to him as Messiah. And Jesus said the final sign that God would give, the final revelation to this world that would authenticate his ministry and messiahship was the sign of the resurrection. You know, when he referred to Jonah, that's interesting to me, and it's also significant. You see, in Psalm 40, verse 7, a psalm that we know was Jesus speaking before his incarnation. Of course, as the second person of the Trinity, he's always existed. And so, from heaven to the psalmist, he speaks in Psalm 40, verse 7. How do we know it's Jesus? Because the author to the book of Hebrews quotes this very verse in Hebrews 10, verse 7, and attributes it to Jesus. So we know Jesus is talking. And listen to what he said. He said, Behold, I come, listen, and the volume of the book, it is written of me. Now, I don't know if you understand what he's saying there, but let me try to help you. He is saying that everything in the Old Testament scriptures, in some way, shape, or form, speaks of Jesus. Of course, the whole Bible is the story of redemption. And who is at the very heart of the story of redemption? Jesus Christ. So really, it's all about him. And whether you're talking about prophecies or types, pictures, God has used many ways to communicate to us the truth about Jesus. You know, he had said to the scribes and Pharisees back in John 5, verse 39, he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Listen. But it is they that testify of me. And yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. You guys spend all day long searching the scriptures, studying the scriptures. But you're missing the point. They all point to me. And yet you won't come to me that I might give you the very life you're seeking after through all your works and rituals and ceremonies and so on. So, by talking about Jonah and the great fish, he not only authenticated the story is true, that's a blessing, all right, 
He said it spiritually pointed to himself and prophesied about his resurrection. You know, skeptics claim the story of Jonah can't be true because no one could survive in the belly of a great fish. Maybe it was a whale or literally a fish prepared by God. Said The Bible says God prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. So, you know, something that maybe we had never seen before. Okay, something uh, just a special creation of God for that very purpose. We don't know. But skeptics read the story of Jonah and say, you know, that story can't be true. Because nobody could survive three days and nights in the belly of a great fish and live. Who said Jonah lived? Who said Jonah survived? If you read the story of Jonah, it sounds like he died in that fish's belly and then was resurrected by God. Something that Jesus seems to be affirming by likening Jonah's experience to his own coming death by crucifixion, where the Lord himself would spend three days and nights in the grave before being resurrected. Now, in verses 41 and 2, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the nation. See, God had given the nation of Israel much light. He had chosen them to be the keepers of his word and the channels of his truth to this world. He had put her in a special place of blessing as the people of God. In fact, Jesus, the good shepherd, had first presented himself to the lost sheep of the house of Israel as their Messiah and King. John, as he opens up his gospel, is introducing to us Jesus. You remember what he said in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not extinguish it. That's true. No darkness could extinguish the truth that Jesus came to bring to Israel, but, listen, his own people could and did reject it. And that's why John goes on to say he came to his own, his own people, Israel. But his own did not receive him. Then he turned to the Gentiles. And John says, but as many as would receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Now, later in John 3, when Jesus is talking to a religious leader of Israel named Nicodemus, he basically indicted the people of Israel. But he's talking, he goes on to it include the whole world, anyone who would reject him. He said, you know, this is the condemnation. I've come into the world as light. I've come with the truth, but you rejected me. And here's the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And this was true first and foremost of Israel. Again, who Jesus came to first with the truth of God, with the light of God, and yet they rejected him. And so now Jesus pronounces judgment upon the nation because they didn't love the truth, want the truth, and eventually wound up crucifying the truth. And so we read in verses 41 and 2, he said, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Now Jesus mentions the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. And how that on the day of judgment they're going to be called to the witness stand you might say. In the supreme court of God's great white throne judgment. And testify against that generation for having rejected Christ as their Messiah. 
And you know what? When the Lord said this, it must have really stung the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba were all Gentiles. He said, someday, you guys who think you're so much better than everybody else, that God really only loves the Jewish people, and if you get right down to it, the scribes and Pharisees thought, he only really loves us because we're the only ones who keep the law. Gentiles, they were made to fuel the fires of hell, the rabbis thought. Well, Jesus said, those very Gentiles that you despise, the ones who have received me, they're going to rise up in judgment of you someday. Gentiles sitting in judgment of wayward Jews. He talked about the men of Nineveh. You realize that the men of Nineveh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians, if you've ever studied history of these people, the Assyrians were a brutal people who did horrific things to any people of any city they conquered who would dare to resist them. You see, when Assyria set its sights on a city to conquer it, they would surround the city and they would say, look, you need to surrender. If a city uh, fought, when the Assyrians finally conquered them, they did brutal things to those people. They would strip them naked. They would put hooks in their jaws and they would bind them together with chains and lead them on a death march, really. Uh, they would cut the heads off of the men and stick them on poles and stick the poles around the whole perimeter of the city to act as a deterrent to other cities who would dare to try to defy the armies of the Assyrians. Not nice folks, okay? Brutal people. So when God told the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to the people that they only had 40 days left before God's judgment fell, Jonah didn't want to do it. He hated the Assyrians. He wanted God to judge them. He wanted God to wipe them out. So what does he do? He runs the other way. And he goes down to Joppa, gets in a boat sailing for Tarshish. That's, that's how he wound up in the fish in the first place. Because as he starts to make his escape from God, God says, oh, no, you don't. Brings a storm, you know, and puts this, this ship in the midst of a terrible storm for days. The crew, being very, very superstitious and pagan, thought somebody on board has is, is angered some god somewhere. So they cast lots to find out who it was. Lot fell on Jonah. They said, fess up, what's going on? You're right, it's me. I'm a prophet of God. He wanted me to do this deal, and I wouldn't do it. Throw me overboard, and the storm will stop. So they tossed him overboard. And sure enough, here comes that great fish that God prepared, swallows Jonah, and gives him the first submarine ride uh, all the way to the shore. Now, Nineveh was not located on the coast, but brought him to the coast where then he was able to walk to Nineveh. Now, I don't know about you, but I've thought about this. What does the guy look like after having spent three days and nights in the belly of any animal? I mean, when the when this fish regurgitated this wayward prophet up onto the shore, then he staggered to Nineveh, I would have to say to see this guy Walk in your town? I mean, think about it. He's got a reek, first of all. The digestive juices in the fish's stomach must have dissolved all the hair in his body and bleached him to a certain shade of white. He might have had seaweed kind of hanging off of him, clothes all tattered. He walks into town and says, repent. I don't know about you, but I think I'd repent. And they did. And Jesus said, look, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, 
a greater than Jonah is here speaking of Jesus, and you will repent at my preaching is the idea. When Jesus said a greater than Jonah is here, he had two things in mind. His superiority over Jonah as a man and over Jonah's message. First of all, Jonah was simply a man that God had chosen to speak his truth. Jesus, on the other hand, was the God-man who was the truth of God. Secondly, Jonah delivered a message to the Ninevites that contained, listen, no love and no hope. He breezes into town, walks through the city. I mean, he didn't want to be there. He, he didn't care about the Ninevites. His message had reflected no hope, no love. It was basically 40 days, then comes destruction. And I'm paraphrasing. 40 days till you guys get yours, and I can't wait, you rotten sinners. That was basically the message. And here these pagans repented. Whereas Jesus brought a message to the people of Israel that was full of love and hope. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. And yet, as Jesus said, Israel refused to repent at his preaching. Well, the men of Nineveh did repent at the preaching of Jonah. And so Jesus said, they would testify against you someday in God's supreme court of the universe. Why? Because, look, I'm sure on that day of judgment, these Ninevites are going to say to the people of Jesus' day, look, we repented at the preaching of a guy who didn't love us, didn't care about us, offered us no hope, and we repented because we feared God enough to listen to what he had to say. You guys, here comes the Son of God in your midst. And gave you a message of God's love and God's hope. That his arms are open to anybody no matter how bad you were. No matter how much you'd sinned. Come, Jesus said to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Yet you refuse to receive that loving kind of preaching. Of hope and so on. Man. Look, the lesson I think is both clear and sobering. The more grace God gives a person or a people. With regard to his truth the more severe the punishment in hell is going to be if they refuse that truth and don't repent. And I think America needs to really sit up and listen to this. I'm wondering on the day of judgment, how many people from Africa, the Middle East, the Far East, who have not grown up with the gospel like we have, and yet... When they heard anything, the smallest thing about God's love and Jesus Christ repented of their sins and received Christ, how they're going to rise up someday and sit in judgment of this generation. Because we have ample amounts. I mean, everywhere you look, we have opportunity to hear the truth on the radio, to watch ministries that declare truth. We can own as many Bibles as we want. We can go to church whenever we want. We have truth flooding down on us from every direction. And yet so many have hardened their hearts and will not repent and have just refused to turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. Well, and then he talks about the Queen of Sheba. In verse 42, where the Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is referring to the account in 1 Kings 10 where the Queen of Sheba traveled all the way from Africa, listen, 
at great effort and personal expense to her to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And in contrast, Jesus is indicting the people of his day. He said, look, you don't have to travel at all to hear me. I came to you. That's what Jesus did. He traveled around. He went into villages and cities preaching God's word, giving the gospel. She said, you know, she traveled all the way from Africa at great effort and personal expense to herself just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Here, I've come into your midst, but you don't want to hear my wisdom. Jesus said, a greater than Solomon is here. Listen, Solomon had wisdom from God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Solomon was a great king. Jesus is the king of kings. It says in the story that Solomon gave some earthly riches to the queen of Sheba because she came and wanted to hear his wisdom. The Bible says that Jesus Christ will give to all those eternal treasure of everlasting life if they will listen to his wisdom and apply it to their lives. He is greater than Solomon. And once again, I think the lesson is clear. The greater the opportunity the greater the judgment if that opportunity is wasted. Look at, as we kind of wind this up, America has been given more blessings and opportunities in the way of knowing God and learning his truth than any other nation in the history of the world. And yet, like Israel, we have also become an evil and an adulterous generation that loves darkness rather than light. Listen to what God says to the prophet Isaiah speaking to Israel. As they had turned their backs on God, and this is how their culture had degenerated. Listen as God rebukes the nation through the prophet Isaiah, and see if you can't relate to what we see going on in our country today. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, it says, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, O house of Jacob, because... They are filled with eastern ways. How much eastern mysticism have Americans bought into? Everything from yoga to TM. The church has bought into it too. The church has gotten into Christianized yoga, Christianized transcendental meditation called contemplative prayer. Your people are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. Their land is also full of gold and silver. They're very prosperous. And there is no end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. There is no end of their chariots. They were had a lot of might militarily. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. Sounds like Americans. That which their own fingers have made. People bow down. And a man humbles himself before idols. Therefore, do not forget them. And again, this describes Israel back then, much like America today which turned their backs on God, and the result was their nation was filled with all kinds of evil practices. In fact, it's very sad to me that we once called ourselves a nation under God. As a nation under God, the word sin has almost completely disappeared from our national vocabulary. In fact, one author said, when God fades from a nation's conscience, one can justify just about anything. We are justifying things today that we would never have even tolerated 10 or 15 years ago. It's just indicative of how far away we are moving from God every single day. And the church, listen, which is supposed to be the moral conscience of the world, the light of the world, 
The church is supposed to fight against the darkness. Unfortunately, for the most part, not all the church, but for the most part, the church in America has succumbed to the darkness instead of fighting against it. You've heard me talk about Vance Havner, the old Baptist preacher. Uh, he was a great guy, great man of God. Listen to what he said on this topic. I'm quoting him now. He said, We are living at the close of an age that is dominated by the prince and powers of darkness, a world where men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The darkness has never been more pervasive in my lifetime than it is today in our nation. Not only do we live in the dark as Christians, we've gotten used to the dark. We have all had the experience of walking into a very dark room where all we could see was blackness, but after a few seconds our eyes adjusted and we got used to the dark. This has happened to many Christians spiritually and morally. We are all experiencing a slow, subtle, and sinister brainwashing process that is gradually desensitizing us to the darkness. Little by little, sin is being made to look less and less sinful until the light that is in us is darkness. And as Jesus said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The result is we no longer hate evil. We don't abhor it. We've gotten used to the dark, end quote. You know, earlier in Matthew 7, when we studied that passage, we saw how that Jesus was talking primarily to individuals, but it could apply to nations. He talked about those people who were wise, who built their faith, their lives on God's word through obedience to what he had said. He called them wise people. He said, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. It's a symbol of judgment, judgment day basically. And great was its fall. Our nation has exchanged obedience toward God for just reckless behavior where truth is relative and if it works, whatever you want to call truth is fine. Whatever you don't want to call truth is fine. Do whatever feels good and so on. That's the mentality today. Because of it, we are become a foolish nation. And if the Lord Jesus Christ should tarry another 10 or 15, 20 years, which I don't think he's going to, I'm not sure he's going to tarry another 10 days or 10 hours. But if he should tarry another 10 or 20 years, I don't believe we're going to see America like we see it today. I think it's going to have fallen in that time. And as Jesus said, great is going to be its fall. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 11, verses 2 and 3, Listen, the wicked bend their bows. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. And what is their motivation? Verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What are the wicked always trying to do? They're always trying to destroy the foundations of a godly nation. Because if they can destroy the foundation, whatever is built on it will crumble. Look, I don't have to tell you guys how important this election is. I believe it's definitely the most important in our lifetime and very possibly the most important in the history of our nation. I really believe that. There are those who want to destroy the foundations upon which this nation was built. And if they succeed, America, as we have known it, will cease to exist. You say, is there still time? Well... I don't know. 
But you know, Nineveh only had 40 days left before God was going to wipe them out. And they repented. And God gave them another 150 years before they again got so bad and didn't repent and he destroyed them. Does that mean God will give us another 150 years? I don't think so. But I'll take anything longer that gives our loved ones more time to repent and get saved. I'll take any amount of grace that extends the time that God will spare his judgment from America to give more people time to repent. But what can the righteous do now before the foundations are completely destroyed? The righteous can pray. The righteous can pray. Our nation was birthed through prayer and our nation is going to survive only through prayer. We're getting close to Thanksgiving. And one of George Washington's early official acts was the first Thanksgiving proclamation, which reads in part, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, and to be grateful for His benefits, and to humbly implore His protection and favor. It is foolishness to think that we can ask God to keep blessing us and sustaining us if we're not willing to acknowledge Him and obey what He has said and be grateful for everything He's given us and not to take credit for what God's given us and make it seem like we did it ourselves. That's what Israel did, by the way. They began to take credit for what God had done. And America is doing the same thing. Abraham Lincoln said, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their own dependence upon the overruling power of God and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And the idea is God is the Lord. He is the ruler, and we live in obedience to Him. Wouldn't you love to have leaders like this today? You know, the sad reality is our nation gives lip service to the greatness of guys like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, but do you realize if they were running for office today, they could never get elected? Think about that. They're way too out there, far right, weirdos. That's how far left our country has gone in the last 200 and some years. Is it too late? I hope not. I know one thing. It will be too late if we don't do what God had said in Second Chronicles 7.14. You all know it. Let me read it to you one more time. And it's directed at the church, at the people of God. He said, if my people who are called by my name, are you called by his name? Then you are his people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face and pray, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear a conditional promise. Then I will hear their prayers from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. God's people. It always has to start with us. And that's where the Bible says judgment also starts at the house of God. Why? Because like Israel, we have the truth. We know the truth. We can't plead ignorance. And God's people today, for the most part, are asleep in the light, entangled with the cares of this life, are trying to serve two masters, whatever you... We just see it everywhere. The church needs to repent. You think Republicans are the answer? Repentance is the answer. 
and only repentance. And so may God help us. And it starts with us. We are the people of God. We need to repent. We need to say, God, I'm going to stop playing games. I'm going to stop trying to serve two masters. I'm going to stop, Lord, trying to give you, I'm giving you lip service, but with my life I'm not living really for you as I should. God, I need to repent. Give me grace to change, Lord, that I can be the light you've called me to be. And that means I first and foremost must walk in the light myself. May God help us. And I just ask you to pray. Pray. That God will give us the best man that we have presented to us. And that God would save that man and make him the best leader we've ever had. But keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the only one that really matters. And he's coming soon. Father, we thank you that you have opened our eyes, that you have shed your light, your truth into our hearts. And that, Lord, by your grace, we responded and are now your children. But, Lord, give us grace because so many of your people seem to be asleep in the light or seem to be trying to serve two masters, the world and you. Give us grace, Lord, to get on our knees and repent. These are the last days and they are the blackest of days. And it calls for your people to be serious, to not play games anymore. Father, give us grace to do that. We ask you to, right here in this church, Lord, revive our hearts. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Give us a burning passion for souls and a desire to be a light in this dark world, no matter what the darkness tries to do to us, to extinguish the light. They can never extinguish the truth as long as our lives are being lived in obedience to you. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.